Hello, and welcome to Your Killer Life, where together we tackle the reality of surviving a killer diagnosis like cancer, and I help guide you through creating your killer life. I am your host, Tammy Grable Woodford, and in this podcast, we aren't leaving anything out as my guests and I share deeply personal insights and experiences as we talk about trauma, loss, treatment options, caregiving, side effects, money. Hey, we open it all up. In fact, we are even going into the forbidden zone to talk about sex, relationships, and mental health. Remember, the conversations you hear on the show are based on unique experiences and varying diagnoses, and we all had our own medical teams. We are not giving medical advice. So if you hear something inspiring, please talk with your providers. All right, are you ready? I know I am. So let's get busy and start building your killer life. Hello and welcome to Your Killer Life, a podcast where we talk about the really real realities of a killer diagnosis like breast cancer with a focus on health, hope, and happiness as we build an intentional killer life. I am your host, Tammy Grable Woodford, and thank you for listening in. I have a question. Does the topic of secondary breast cancer make you uncomfortable? Is it the invisible elephant in the room that no one's discussing? Have you had a concern about secondary breast cancer, but didn't feel heard when you were talking with your provider or your providers? Secondary breast cancer and recurrence are both ongoing concerns in cancer land. And so today we're going to talk about it. My guest today is one of my international breast friends and describes herself as a cocktail slinging, art doing, zip lining horse rider, hopefully not at the same time, the zip line and the horse, before secondary breast cancer at the age of just 28. Tassia is an amazing advocate and has an incredible blog called Pink Is Not My Color. And she is joining us from Wales. And so color is C-O-L-O-U-R which will be in the show notes. Her writing style is ripe with authenticity that comes with, well, face it, a diagnosis like cancer. And Tassia, I just love your tagline. It's not about dying with cancer, but how you choose to live with it. Could you tell us a little bit about you? Thank you, Tammy. That was lovely. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so basically, uh, I had primary breast cancer at 24. Yeah, 2016. But I won't linger on that too much. Basically, went through it, you know, the usual chemotherapy, I had a mastectomy, had radiotherapy, and then I was on like remission essentially. You know what it's like, you're fixed now, off you go. So I went off to live my life for a bit. Uh, that's what the zip line in, horse riding stuff came into it. Then at 28, uh, so January 2020, I was diagnosed, but on December the 31st, I went to a general practitioner, so the GP, with back pain. So I'd been having it all the way through December, fell down the stairs at the start of December. Brilliant. Uh, (laughs) So I left it kind of a month, and then it started getting worse and worse. I thought, I better go and check this out. So I went on December 31st, seen a back specialist. Long story short, because it is a long story, pretty much I went back and forth to the general practitioner six times and I was assessed 10 times. So by different people, including this supposed back specialist. By January the 30th, so not even a month later or just about a month later, uh, whilst waiting for a kidney scan, 
I was driving to work one day with my partner and I felt really sick. I opened the car door just to lean out and, you know, do what you got to do. And kind of like, I just felt the blood rush from my face and this blackness. And I, I just remember feeling the pain at the back of my spine. When I sort of came to, my legs were underneath the car. I kind of fell out and my cheek was on like the cold, wet pavement. I mean, it was January, it was freezing. And I remember I opened up and I had longer hair then. It's like a bob. It was just on the floor. And where I'd sort of, sorry to be graphic, kind of like vomited a little bit, just like this white for me. It had started like running towards me. And I remember the panic thinking, oh my God, this white form's coming towards me. But I couldn't move because my my back and my spine and everything had like tightened up so again long story short pretty much 14 hours later then I had the diagnosis of secondary breast cancer but by that point if I'm honest it wasn't really a shock to me so kind of like what we touched on earlier (laughs) when we were talking um the idea of it's just kind of like you know you're young you're not gonna get breast cancer let alone secondary breast cancer but what I wasn't told in my end of treatment care after my primary cancer was that there is a 33% chance of this coming back and killing you. The fact that it's not represented in charities, it's not represented by your medical team, they don't bring that information towards you. I found that really scary. And then that pretty much started my uh, my advocacy journey then, if you like. And yeah, how I kind of found your podcast and everything. So. <laughs> Well, your blog is amazing. And you caught my attention with when fear kills. And I'm going to come back to that. Before I do, I just want to say, I mean, look at you've been in the Daily Mail. There's a YouTube video of you talking about uh, metastatic breast cancer in your 20s. And I'm going to link to all of that in the show notes for listeners or anyone who's watching on YouTube. So you'll be able to click that and follow that. And before we talk about secondary breast cancer, I do want to take a second because I did, I did want to pull up the definitions and I wanted to give those definitions, not just off the top of my head, but recurrence of cancer, of course, is when cancer that is the same type as the original cancer comes back, although it may be in a different place, but a secondary cancer can develop after you've finished treatment for the first cancer. And unlike recurrent, the secondary cancer is a different or new type of cancer diagnosis. And there are so many factors that play into that when you, uh, so you were secondary cancer and not recurrence. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And I knew that because I cheated and looked at your blog and totally read your stuff before we got together. But I wanted to give the opportunity to talk about that because one of the things that caught my attention, and I didn't, I didn't realize this, right? All of us in cancer land, we're kind of a, you know, we're all on the same train and at different stops and <laughs> eating in different meal cars, right? Like there's all <laughs> kinds of stuff going on. And so I hadn't thought about secondary breast cancer being something that might require a trigger warning. And, you know, to your point, you're right. Like you ring the bell or you finish treatment or, you know, what, whatever your healing process and treatment is, and you sort of think about being done. And yet I know for me personally, you know, that 
I have a weird pain for two days and I'm like, oh my gosh, it must be the elbow cancer because my elbows and right. Like you just, you have that constantly in the back of your mind. And so I, two things I really want to talk about, not just the trigger warning. And I, I made a note, so we'll both remember and come back to this, but also uh, age bias, but your blog post does secondary breast cancer upset you to the point that you need a trigger warning. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and kind of what your experience is there? Yeah. I'll keep some of it vague, just not drop various people in it, doxing, that sort of thing. Um, but a few incidences occurred um, last year. So like you said, I thought, having been through primary cancer too, like you just said, I thought we were all on the same train, all in the same boat. I didn't realize how sort of clicky cancer communities can be, how shocking that was. I thought, wow, we've all got this life-altering illness. And in, in my case, and stage four case, Stage four, by the way, is the same as metastatic, secondary for anyone confused. You know, I got pretty thick skin. I'm okay, but, you know, you don't need to be so mean kind of thing. So basically, it would happen. I like to go on a lot of forums. Uh, I like to find a lot of younger women dealing with it. Um, My process of dealing with it is just to talk, 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 talk till the cows come home. Uh, So when I'm on certain forums and things, so you get into some discussion with people and what I found is I've had to start stop taking myself out of some younger women forums and start putting myself in secondary breast cancer forums specifically because now I must stress it doesn't happen often but it has happened a number of times to put me off you will get maybe one in a couple of people who you're talking about it and then you're not trying to bring the mood down or anything say you're sharing chemo tips or something like that then you might say something which say oh you know but we're stage four and you might say something that's on your mind thinking it's a safe space like oh I'm not sure if I'm gonna live to my wedding you, you know you just if you can't speak openly in a cancer forum where can you speak openly right and you might get some people because some of it's anonymous just say like oh I don't think that's the place for this kind of conversation it's happened online as well certain charity in the UK certain charity Facebook pages there was a friend of mine who was featured on one of these in on the charity Facebook page talking about her secondary cancer and there were a few comments they've been deleted uh, this happened a few months ago and there were people in the comments kind of saying I didn't need to see this on my Facebook page you know and it's really like wow, I'm sorry that our life offends you. But, you know, you you kind of... The frustrating thing about this is the advocacy and the raising awareness that we're doing is not for us. It's too late for us, unfortunately. I mean, hell, if I knew there was a 33% that I might get it, I might have been a little bit more vigilant. I certainly would have pushed a lot harder not to have 10 blinking assessments. So, yeah, it, so chemo brain. <laughs> you are in the right place. You don't have to apologize for that. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. To my friend, the thought there, breast cancer. Can you help me, Tommy? I sure can. Absolutely. Well, and you know, so we were talking about just in the forums and I find this so interesting because I know my personal perspective has always just been, you know, none of us 
asked for this shit show, right? Like we were just sort of drafted and we're all here going through it and doing the best that we can to live our best life with what we have going on. And everybody, you know, we're all at different stages. We're all, you know, even you can have two people with the exact same type of cancer with two different medical oncology recommendations, doing two different treatment regimens. And so you just, you kind of never know. I, I know that from my own experience with, um, my second opinions, right? How drastically they varied. And so we are all in the same boat. And if we can't have grace and love and support for one another, I just, I, you know, I would only hope that we could find that regardless of the stage, regardless of gender. I've had a few male breast cancer survivors on. And so it is a little heartbreaking. And at the same time, I can say that as someone who's been through it, I understand, right? Hurt people hurt people and not always intentionally as we grapple with the realities of really what cancer can look like and death you know i can i can't speak for the uk but i can speak for the states like we don't like talking about that so you know death is a <laughs> tough topic and yet when you hear those words that you have cancer your mortality and death are are all of the sudden you know like a 2 by 4 to the forehead it is something that you are facing i can understand some people wanting to I guess, protect their, their mind space for a lack of a better way to put it. But at the same time, I, I would hope that we also have enough grace to understand that we have sisters and brothers in the same space that, that need to have these conversations in an open, authentic, genuine, caring, loving way, because we are all facing reality. Bottom line, yes, we are all walking towards the same destination, death and taxes, none of us get out of it. But there is a whole new level of awareness that comes with a cancer diagnosis. And so I'm so sorry that you face that. And I will tell you, I will share, I've noticed some of those similar things. When I was first diagnosed and I was in a, in a, a forum and said that I had metastasis to my lymphatic system, to my lymph nodes, as well as my dermis, I was immediately and not so nicely corrected that I had micromets. Otherwise, I would be stage four. And it was interesting to me because, again, in that environment, you would hope that we're just lifting each other up and helping each other out. And I only knew what my doctor provided me, right? Like, I did not, I don't have a medical degree, did not stay at a motel six last night. This is not my area of expertise. So, you know, I'm learning with everyone else. And I'm so sorry you had that experience. And I am still kind of surprised, especially from a charity aspect, that some of that would be deleted because. In many ways, when it comes to advocacy, it seems like an important part of the message. This is the reality that we're dealing with. And there is a real sense of urgency. There should be a real sense of urgency because of it. Yeah, you, you, you're right. I mean, to be honest with you, speaking from the heart, after I was diagnosed with secondary breast cancer and I got the worst, the first bit of chemo done, and then I was on more regular treatment and you know, I could walk. <laughs> I started getting into advocacy because I thought there's got to be something more. Like personally, my healthcare wasn't great. I, I was let down by more doctors, not just in the diagnostic stage. I was let down by more doctors than I was, you know, <laughs> made well. So um, skeptical is a word. So I, I never really felt like I could fully 
trust in them. So, yeah, the issue sort of came then. So I thought, right, I'm going to have to make some connections. Let's just get involved, throw myself in. And the more I started learning about secondary breast cancer, death started to become the easy thing to deal with. Mm-hmm. I thought, right, I know I'm going to die with secondary breast cancer. When that comes, I don't know. Lifespan that's quoted a lot in the UK is two to three years. And then other sources say three to five years. But they don't know exactly because they haven't even got the right data. We'll go into that in a second. So basically, it was like, wow, there is, there's no consistency where you live. It's all throw caution to the wind. And the only thing you can rely on is the charities, which aren't, let's just say they could be doing a lot better as well. And again, I, I will elaborate on all that, not just to like, you know, screw everyone over and just be like, everything's awful. I mean, I'm still alive. So obviously some things are going well, but uh, I do think if I hadn't taken a lot of things into my own hands, I don't think I'd be sitting here talking to you right now. That's not saying don't listen to your doctor. That's just saying try to understand, like you've said before, be your own advocate, try and understand what's in front of you, empower yourself. Doctors are not gods. Yes, they are educated in it. You should listen to them, but it's a conversation at the end of the day, not a dictatorship. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that you said that because self-advocacy is so important. And I, I always joke that you're the, the resident expert when it comes to your body because you've been living in it for however many years you've had it. And so you really, truly are. And it is a dialogue. And so I kind of do want to go back and ask that question about age bias because at, um, did you say you were 26 when you had that secondary? 28. 28. Okay. So originally at 24 in 2016, and then you were 28 with the secondary. So 28, you're still young. And, you know, the crazy thing about cancer is that I was super healthy at the age of 43 and, you know, like literally doing pull-ups, running every other day, exercising. And here I had a stage 3B cancer growing inside of me. Who knew, right? And so it's sort of this weird disease that until you know it's there and start monitoring it sometimes it's a really sneaky. And so at the age of 28 and you were horseback riding and zip lining and doing all these things. So I can see where a doctor might at first think, oh, well, you're 28, you're active, you're doing all these things. It's probably just you twisted your back, you torqued a thing. And yet 10 times is a lot. And so I think that when it comes to patient advocacy, you know, my heart actually breaks for you, Tasia, because you, you shouldn't have had that moment in the car and on the highway uh, to get somebody to listen. And so what changes have you kind of made for yourself when it comes to self-advocacy after? Because I, I imagine you're a bit of a bulldog of a self-advocate after that. <laughs> Well, basically, um, since after the chemo and all the rest of it, I have been lucky, like I've been stable, uh, grown slowly, but within the parameters, you know, so I'm happy on this treatment line. Before that, there were certain things. So basically, when I was in hospital, I was a nuisance mind. Um, Every time a nurse would come in and give me my meds and line them up, what's that? What's the milligram? How much? Why am I on that? Every time. And think of this like four times a day in the hospital. And I did actually, again, not not bad-mouthing people that work in hospitals at all. Like, I love them. <laughs> but there were a couple of occasions, because they are human, 
you know, a few agency nurses might have gotten some of my dosages wrong or the wrong meds. Like someone nearly accidentally gave me another shot of paracetamol again. But then luckily, because I was, I might, I was high on morphine, but I bloody knew <laughs> what I was taking. Um, and then it kind of like, I got a bit annoyed because when I left hospital, I was on a lot. I was on a high dosage of steroids for about a month. I needed them at the time, but long story short, because my life is just full of long story shorts, and we'd be here all day if I went into it. Uh, I was on these steroids, and I didn't really need to be longer than a week. So within the space of a month, I'd gone from like nine and a half stone to thirteen stone. No word of a lie. Like you know, I'm. My bed, you know, stretch. My, well, it was like being pregnant, but just like on on steroids, literally. You know? And when I went into the, the oncologist meeting, and was, this was just before COVID hit, by the way, so you can't really blame that. <laughs> now, now everyone blames it, but back then it was legit, just you know, issues due to certain miscommunications, certain issues here and there. Um, again, I can't really go into it, but let's just say, yeah, I was on medication I shouldn't have been on. And also, again, it was assumed that the cancer that I had would be the same protein HER2 uh, negative as I was on primary. So HER2 is like, yeah, the protein that sort of covers the cancer cells. They assumed I would be that because it's like, oh, it's only a, a 5% chance you want. Turned out, I was her too positive, so I'd been on the wrong medication for a month. <laughs> you know, so let's just say when it came to self-advocacy, I felt like I learned the hard way of I need to be on it. So then I just researched myself what what it meant, you know, forums and websites and just constantly. And then when I joined MetaWK UK later last year, it was brilliant because I literally have a question and it's just full of knowledgeable women in that group. So it's just constantly like, what does this mean? What does that mean? And I'm getting that. I'm so thankful to have found that now. But there's so many women that don't have that. And it, it's scary. And they have to turn to the charities. And the charities, you know, don't work around the clock and and limited budgets because they're charities. And so they're, you know, they're dependent on the uh, funding that they can get through donations. But this is really important. So they, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like they assumed you had a recurrence, but you actually had a secondary cancer. Is that correct? Like they started by treating you as though it was the same cancer and it was just a recurrence of that. And then you had some additional testing and they found out it was not that it had changed or something had changed and it was a secondary or a different diagnosis. I think it was more along the lines of they knew it was secondary because of the CAT scan they'd done. And because I should have mentioned earlier, my bad, it's breast cancer, but it's in the bones. And I basically got it from both my femurs, my hips, my ribs, my lumbar spine, all the way up the vertebrae, the neck and the skull. So from the extent of that and from the CT and the MRIs, they could see that that was metastasized. So that was secondary cancer. It wasn't like a local reoccurrence or anything like that. But it's a good question. I actually consider that <laughs> that might have been uh, an option. But yeah, they just assumed that it might have just been basically breast cancer cells can mutate. So what I'm not an expert, but what I think happened is it was from the original primary I had. 
And even though there was no evidence that when I went into remission, it only takes one cell to find the right environment. And if you've got bad luck, that's the way it is. And yeah, I think it just mutated into her two positive. And that's what got me to where I am now, essentially. And I think it's also important to kind of pause for a moment and say, because we did both share experiences that were maybe not positive in some of the online groups and forums and things like that. And sometimes it's just not the right energy, not the right room, not the right right place. Because as you just said, there are those spaces where you have so many women and men who are sharing their experiences and, and so wonderfully open and authentic and genuine and in their care and taking care in how they are interacting with others who are on this journey. And I know for me, you know, once you kind of find your home, you're like, this is, this is great. You're contributing to community. You have community. And especially with all the COVID craziness, being able to have that has been absolutely amazing. And you're right. It's everywhere from charities to forums, to Facebook groups, to clubhouse rooms, to like, there's just, there, there are a lot of us. <laughs> a lot of us. And uh, yeah, once you find your, your sort of like your, your cancer community home, it, it's a really, really good feeling. It's a club you don't want to be a part of, no. but you're kind of happy you are at the same time because you found your people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I think about how lonely and hard this would be. And at first, when I was first diagnosed of all the random things, a friend of mine said, Hey, I have another friend who was just diagnosed with breast cancer. Can I connect the two of you? So we were diagnosed in the same month. And even though our treatments were different, our cancer types were different and, you know, our choices in bilateral, unilateral, like mastectomy, all the things are different, but still kind of having a, a buddy to go through it. Sadly, since then, I've had three other friends who've been diagnosed with cancer and so sort of had this tiny cohort of people I already knew and loved that, you know, like literally being <laughs> with my friend and I being the first ones, you know, people saying, what does it look like when you're going through reconstruction and sharing photos and having those conversations, which was really so helpful you know, then kind of stepping out from that and looking at some of the other groups and, and things, you know, and some of us went to in-person groups. I live in a very rural area. So the online thing worked for me. I am loving clubhouse right now, the clubhouse app for that, because that's just been fantastic. But finding that community is, is really important. And I think the other thing interesting about the community is that sometimes I shouldn't say sometimes, too often you'll see a woman who will post a picture of something or ask a question and say, you know, this doesn't feel right and I can't reach my provider. I don't know if I should go to the emergency room or not. I don't know. And with honestly any major procedure, but you know, when you have implants and you have cadaver tissue and you're going through reconstruction or even if it's your own tissue reconstruction, cellulitis is a real concern. MRSA is a real concern, like all of these things. And to have that knowledge base, that collective is so powerful and such a good resource. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so what would you really want men and women who have had breast cancer to know about secondary breast cancer and how to advocate for themselves? Cool. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> so yeah, obviously in the UK, uh, it's 
things a little bit different to the US. So everything I say, I can only say from my knowledge as someone who lives in the UK. Um, but I'm sure <laughs> it must work similar where you are, <laughs> other than the fact that we have the NHS. I'm, I'm imagining it's kind of similar. But anyway, I, I can go into it from a British perspective. Sorry. <laughs> Don't apologise. <laughs> yeah, so basically... Um, I just want to give a little bit of context for going into exactly what, if that's okay. Um, when Earlier on, when I said I was feeling disturbed about the things I was learning about secondary cancer, it went beyond like the clicks and trigger warnings and all that sort of thing. It's basically feeling like being let down all the time, not just by your oncologists or whatever, but by your, by your government, by the charities. So when I started doing more like self-advocacy. I was doing a lot of research for my blog and I found Cancer Research UK is the biggest cancer research charity in the UK, hence <laughs> Cancer Research UK. Uh, in 2018, they turned over £634 million. Pounds. That's just in one year, 2018. And it just made me think, and I know in the grand scheme of things, you know, £634 million might not be that much money. <laughs> but... I thought, well, isn't it mad they're generating that kind of money every single year, but we still have to go through things like chemotherapy, which has been around since World War II. That's interesting. So I started to dig in a little bit more, a bit more. And I thought, secondary breast cancer. Okay, so by then I had seen the Met of UK and the statistics they were presenting forward. And, you know, 31 people die a day of breast cancer in the UK. Um, it's the biggest killer of women under 50. In the UK, uh, so all these shocking numbers are coming out to me. And I thought, wow, the one that stuck out the most to me was 33% of women that get breast cancer will go on to develop metastatic breast cancer. So one in three people. I thought that's huge. Surely that means that's represented in the charity. So I went to the biggest breast cancer charity in the UK, Breast Cancer Now, and they kind of help lobby the government. They put a bit of money into secondary research, clinical trials, that sort of thing. And I thought, this will be the one to go to. And I couldn't find any transparent information. All I could find was they aim to make breast cancer a chronic illness by 2050. And I thought, I could die right now, and I could be reborn and live to the same age I am now, and it'll still kill me by the time they have a plan. <laughs> so I thought, and there was nothing there to sort of say what they were doing towards that. It was just very, not. it, it was a lack of transparency. So I went to the forums, I asked around. Uh, one lady kindly sent me a screenshot of a, of a chat she'd had with someone that worked there uh, some time ago. And the number they came up with was Breast Cancer Now spent 18% of their budget uh, towards secondary resources. And I thought, well, surely it should be at least 33% if you want to be diplomatic. And then I thought, well, secondary cancer, secondary breast cancer, is the only breast cancer that kills. You can't die from primary breast cancer. Secondary breast cancer will kill you. It is a death sentence. I'm not flowering it up. That, that's what it is. And kind of the shying away from just that truth. You know, like, this is what it is. And kind of what we were talking about earlier, you know, some women that have had primary might feel a bit upset and for their own personal mental health, don't want to deal with it. But, you know, is a very real risk. One in three is a massive risk. 
everyone needs to be aware of it. So he's sort of walking around and you realise no one's bothered. Everyone seems really just completely apathetic. I wrote on the blog, coined it myself, but I loved it. I was like, well, apathy kills more than direct action. So we need to take direct action on apathy. And that goes all the way up to the government. You know, um, like I said, the government put a mandate out in 2012 to find out how many people in the UK were actually living with metastatic breast cancer. It still hasn't been done. Still, you know, it's taken nine years to literally, literally count people with my illness and go and put it into a computer. That's it. And now they need to have a meeting about an audit. And I'm like, why is this so hard? And yeah, so that's my little rant there. But this is what a lot of people don't understand. It's secondary breast cancer doesn't need to be the death sentence that it is. It really doesn't. If we were given access to more drugs that we can't get on the NHS, a lot of people have to crowdfund for their own drugs. Also, there are silly rules that don't need to be there. So say if you have a certain type of chemo on line one of treatment, and then say that treatment runs out, it's growing, you go on your line two. By the time you're on line three, you could have this option of this wonderful clinical trial drug. But because you've had this chemo on trial one, you can't have that. So it's these weird red tapes that don't need to exist. They won't operate on you. They won't remove certain tumours because it's a little bit like, what's the point? Even though it will prolong your life. I personally believe that if they took even just the tools available to them now, I I would guess that I could probably live till at least 60. I would be that confident if they literally used everything they could on me right now. Um, but they just don't. It's a money game, isn't it? But it feeds into itself. Until they collect data in the UK, then they don't actually know how urgent it is. And then if they don't get their representation, then they're not going to collect data. So it's just constantly. Meanwhile, you know, I've lost eight friends since September. We are dying very quickly, especially since COVID. It's a very real issue. It's a very scary issue. Um, yeah, sorry. Kind of difficult. No. Please don't apologize. I'm I'm over here and I'm thinking to myself, like there's so much data that's already known. They know that 33%, one out of three, right? And, and you have something we don't have in the States, which is NHS. <laughs> so I would hope there would be ICD codes that they could pull where they could get this information. And so it's really interesting. And as you're talking, I'm actually wondering to myself if part of it is because it doesn't fit the narrative of cancer survival, which I have a blog post from when I was first diagnosed talking about cancer math and how ridiculous it is because you're considered a survivor if you make it five years, right? And then, but you can still end up with a secondary and you can end up with a recurrence, but you were still a survivor because you made it the five years. And so it's like this wishy-washy math thing that happens where we count the data we want to count. And then I think there's also this, um, and you talk about the sexualization of breast cancer on your blog, but I think there's also this, there are a couple things. There's the sexualization. There's the warrior subculture where, you know, we're all warriors. And if we didn't fight it right, that's how we lost the battle, right? I mean, that's not how it's said, but as a person who's 
diagnosed with cancer. That's how it sometimes feels. And I know not for everyone. And, and I want to also say, I support anyone who, who that is a part of, of their healing process, their journey. And, and they are absolutely can relate to that. Um, it wasn't something that related was relatable for me. And then also when you think about, I, I call October the cancer awareness month. I call it cancer Coachella, right? Like, (laughs) so here we have cancer Coachella every month where we acknowledge the fact that we don't have a cure and we're still quote unquote in a race for the cure. And we're doing all these things for the cure. And while we're doing it, you have women who are literally fighting for their lives, but damn, their makeup is on point there, right? Like the imagery that is given to us and shown to us. And so as you were talking, it really had me wondering if part of it is that it just doesn't fit that cancer narrative or the optic that they want to work with or, and and by they, I don't even know who I mean, society, you know, um, whatever, you know, that, that is the standard. I'll just put it that way. The optic that is the social norm of what breast cancer is, because it does feel oftentimes with breast cancer, like we should be celebrating that we got a boob job, which we did not, that we should be, you know, grateful that we got the easy cancer, right? Like all of these things that are said to us. And then the reality is exactly what you're talking about that yes, it kills my gosh. I wish I could write fast enough, but, um, apathy killing more killing faster or killing more than direct action. I mean, that is absolutely true. And for us to, to really make a movement for understanding metastatic breast cancer, because that is something that has been, I don't know if it's been overlooked or if it's just been that research has been on early detection. And because that's where it started, that is leaving us with a focus on primary cancer. I'm not sure. Hmm. I mean, all the things you say in that, like strike a card, because when you're talking about, you know, who are they? First thing that came to my mind in the UK, at least, was the breast cancer charities. That well, they are businesses at the end of the day. What is going to sell? What's going to make profits? I get not naming names, but that you know, there are certain breast cancer charities, but the people in on the board are doing triple figure salaries. You know, this is and there's people dying every day. Yeah, you can have advocacy group doing similar or the same work, actually lobbying volunteering it, it it blows my mind but to get that you know they have to push that narrative it's fluffy it's pink let's go for a run and yeah I admit I was the same before I had cancer I didn't know because you just you do what they tell you right we have so much information coming towards us we need to filter what's relevant so everyone is aware of breast cancer like there's been enough done for people to know that's the thing that's the thing I need to be aware of but then when it comes down to it, they say then like their mother or God forbid, you know, someone they know comes down with it. They're going to turn to the last thing that they remember to do with breast cancer. So it'd be one of those charities and they'll go on the website and they might use things like the language, like fighter, survivor, da, 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 da. so they have to learn. They learn the language directly from that. Then they use it. It can work a lot of the time. A lot of people I speak to hate the fight the term too, like because it, it doesn't make sense. Right? It's like what you fighting yourself, grand, you know. Like, oh. <laughs> but yeah, essentially, yeah, boils down to that. Sorry, my brain is awfully cloudy. <laughs> no, I think I actually talked for a long time and threw a lot of things out there. So you unfortunately are dealing with my stream of consciousness as I was tackling that that <laughs> topic. So I apologize to you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, going back to it, I think, you know, seeing like women run marathons in pink, that's marketable. You know, oh, my mother that survived breast cancer 10 years ago, that's marketable. Everything, and then that's going to bring in. And of course, most of it does go towards things. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. All I'm saying is I feel like it could be done better. <laughs> it's just all these little things in motion. Death by It's interesting because as you phrased it that way, I was like, you're right. You know, primary cancer is more marketable because you can pitch a happy ending. And right now with secondary Although I will also say last night in the clubhouse chat, there was someone who was talking about their husband who had survived 17 years with metastatic breast cancer. So it's not that it's an immediate death sentence, but the fact is the end result is still there. And that is a less marketable end result. But at the same time, when you're thinking about charity and research and awareness, it creates a a true, genuine sense of urgency. And it seems like that's, you know, the story that hopefully, hopefully we'll start to see and tell. I know in the States, we're getting more attention towards metastatic breast cancer. um, But again, it's advocates and charities that are, you know, that are making that happen because the research has been sort of in that focus of primary. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But in MetUp UK, by the way, I don't know if you're aware, is the sister group of Meta, which was made in America anyway. So it's like, yay. <laughs> yeah, it actually came from you guys first. So I have to give you credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm glad. I'm so glad. And I know I have so many um, sisters and brothers with metastatic cancer that are, I mean, you're just fierce advocates because you're right. You're fighting for the attention in the sea of primary uh, cancer and and unfortunately, it does feel a little bit like cancer research and advocacy is is kind of cobbled together. You know, you look at overall outcomes for women of color, you look at outcomes for men. You know, you look at uh, subtypes. And you know, me, I'm ILC and lobular cancer being you know ten to fifteen percent of cancer diagnosis, and so and and also being very different than ductal, so much so that we're starting to just research it. And so you have all these slivers of areas that need attention, and it really does feel. And I need to find some scientists to come on the on the show as well, because it does feel like it's really sort of piecemealed. And I'm not quite sure where the uh, direction is coming from for what it is that we're going to research next. But it is such an important topic. And you are also a success story because... And I, I think we kind of, you know, we talked about it, but we also sped forward to a lot of other things. When you had that incident in the car, you could not walk. And so I want to come back to that because there, there are treatments. And even though you had the hiccups with the wrong drugs initially based on the HER2 negative versus HER2 positive, you now, well, I'll just let you tell the story. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was lucky in the sense once all that was kind of sorted, looking to move different oncologists, all the rest of it, had a wonderful secondary breast cancer nurse. So in the process of sort of moving over to a different hospital, a different oncologist, it was kind of like, oh, you're kind of stable at the minute. So let's not upset the apple cart and stay under her care. So basically like this nurse, her name's Anne Baker, she's retiring now, unfortunately. For us, fortunately for her, only secondary breast cancer nurse in Wales, by the way, 
she was wonderful. So I kind of trusted her at that point if I needed anything. And the deal was with the other hospital, it was my oncologist from three years prior, was that as soon as the scan came back and it wasn't quite, you know, something was questionable, I'd be straight back over there because I just didn't feel comfortable. But now as things have gone, I've moved oncologist anyway. But in terms of going back to last year, so I do have a tendency to waffle. I'm um, going back to last year. The chemo was brutal. I think up until July, I was very ill. I was very ill. I couldn't walk. I was in bed most days. My partner would like come up, bring me water. It would be a, a success story if I made it down into the living room to lay down on the couch, then walk back upstairs and lay down. I'm just so ill. It was because the metastases in my bones were like mixed in with a lot of my nerves and things like that. So certain areas were numb. I was just so sore. And then, you know, chemo was like, it's just like, I always say it's like having a really bad flu after cycling 100 miles whilst being hit by a bus. Kind of what it felt like for me. Just so having that with bone met, which is really painful. Yeah. And basically with the oncologist I had, it was whenever I said I got a pain here, what's this pain, what's that? It was, oh, it's fine. Take more morphine, up up your milligrams. And I'm like, I don't really want to keep upping my milligrams. So I kind of went against what he said, and I'm not advocating this, but I, I felt within myself I can do without this. So after the sec, well, towards the end of chemo, I started weaning myself off a strong um, painkiller called pregabalin. And then... I started weaning off the morphine slowly and then around August time when I was down to like the last couple of milligrams I just went I just cold turkeyed it one of the worst weeks of my life I'm not gonna lie I, I'd been on morphine since like end of January and I just went nope <laughs> yeah it was stupid but you know like when you're just so desperate to get off the drugs like I just yes drugs are saving me and I I take my letrozole every day I still have my three weekly herset and pituzumab don't get me wrong drugs are saving my life but when it comes to those painkillers those opioids where I couldn't even say bread most days I was I couldn't I couldn't quite it wasn't working for me it wasn't right for me so I just stopped taking them and slowly I started a walk downstairs I walked to the car I, I went for a drive and it was literally every day. It was like, oh my God, I'm in the car today. The next day, oh, I've walked to the front gate. It was just literally every day. And I'm happy to report like two weeks ago, I went on a four hour walk up the mountain. So it's just this little, 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 little steps. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is essentially just like, you, you've just got to do it. You're going to spend the rest of your life bed bound or it, it did hurt. And I couldn't sit upright and I couldn't even lie straight. I couldn't lie with my feet straight and my back straight. Now I can just do every day, just doing that little bit every time. Um, yeah, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? <laughs> I love that though, because that is, I, you know, active participation in our own care. And I, 
also, I'm not a huge fan of the opioids. And so I, I was kind of on the other end where I would just put myself through the pain before I would take them. And I remember one specific time where I was sitting on the couch and, and Griff said to me, you need to take some pain meds. And I'm like, no, it's fine. It's fine. Because in my head, I was like, no, it's just, I, it's like, it's like fitness. It's like anything else. It's going to hurt for a while that I'm going to figure it out. My body's going to adapt. And no, I took one and I needed it, but it's, it is that balance because you also, you don't want to live in that fog. And I talked in one of my episodes just about the depression and the side effects from, yes, the pain medications are so important and the pain is sincerely present. It is significant. And I had never in my life experienced the fatigue that comes with chronic pain, which is something that so many of us have. And yet at the same time, we're all trying to balance this quality of life with all of the tools that we have, but still being able to be present and live and do something like that. I mean, you have me in tears over here that you walked like that for four you know, up a mountain. That makes it was amazing. It's amazing. It's lovely. <laughs> it makes me so happy. So stinking happy. So happy for you. But you know, and you did that. And your doctor, not that they're doing the wrong thing because they're trying to keep you comfortable as you go through, you know, something, you know, painful, horrendous, and yucky. But that's that I think being in tune with your body and also with your desires and your heart and what you want out of this life, which is huge. Absolutely. Like just to chime in at the end there. It is that I did need them at the start. Obviously, I collapsed. I needed them. Hell, I needed them for five months. But another point was that when the chemo was working and shrinking and they weren't in my nerves so much, there was no conversation facilitated. There was no, you know, every answer was like, how are you? I feel a bit sick. Take more nausea. I was like, okay, you know, more nausea medication. I got a bit of pain right, take your thing, uh, take your morphine. And it's like, yeah, but there needs to be a point where you're going, well, if the cancer isn't, you know, may, it's so painful, then maybe we need to look at other things. So I'm so thankful then for my secondary breast cancer news because she actually came at me with solutions. Instead of saying, take nausea, she's like, you know, eat small meals and all the practical advice. But yeah, going back to the apathy, I felt like it was apathy on my oncologist's behalf of just like, just take more meds rather than looking at my scans and thinking, well, you know, your tumor markers have gone down. Maybe we can try this. I think what I'm trying to say is more of a proactive approach in all treatment, whether it comes from you or your oncologist is always going to be a good thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, yeah. I know in the States, and I was fortunate enough, I, I live near Seattle, so I always joke, like, we're the land of hiking and granola munching, and, you know, we're all <laughs> we're all tech hippies, basically. So I had access to an integrative clinic where I had a Fabno, which is a naturopathic oncologist who shared an office with a medical oncologist, and even though they didn't always agree, it was, for me, great to have the perspectives of everybody, the recommendations of everybody, and then be able to take that, do my own research, and sort of chart my healing path and is a naturopathic oncology a thing in the UK it might be but not that I'm aware of uh that's never been offered to me or that is never something I've actually heard of anyone talk about you know you do get the odd odd and I mean really odd on their own renegade the sort of like I'm gonna do it my own way or whatever but it, it's just not 
yeah, I, it would be interesting just to get all sides because yeah. I do feel like it is just one narrative here. Like this, this is what it is. Yeah. I think there's a real opportunity and, you know, this is just me, I guess on my soapbox, but such an opportunity to bring in nutrition, to bring in a supplementation to, you know, look at whole body health instead of just the focus on treating the disease, actually treat the whole person, I guess is what I always say, right? Like you're not treating a disease, you're treating a human, a whole human. And what does that entire environment look like? Because face it, when we're diagnosed with cancer, our goal is to immediately create the most inhospitable environment for cancer to grow and to also be on the long end of that bell curve, right? None of us wants to be on the short side or even in the middle. We want to extend our life and our quality of life also matters as we do that. So, so much opportunity for growth and advocacy and awareness in this area. And I'm so glad that so many of us, and I will say this too, you know, those those who are diagnosed with breast cancer, who do not feel like being an advocate, do not own it. You don't have to be out talking about it. You don't have to be on a podcast or in the Daily Mail talking about <laughs> breast cancer. But if you are someone called to do that, your voice does matter and it does create impact and community for those who, who are not in that space and for those who, who will inevitably come behind us in this diagnosis. So I want to talk about your blog for a second. I'm going to go back to that. So those uh, for listeners, it's pink is not my color, C-O-L-O-U-R.weebly.com. And I will put that in the show notes, like I said. And you kind of touched on that. You touched on total health, right? Your art, by the way, is so amazing. For those that don't, I will also say uh, your Twitter account is fantastic because I love seeing your art out there. So do you want do you have any sort of like final thoughts and recommendations? And of course, any uh, blog topic that you want to kind of touch on before we start to wrap up? Um, I think final thoughts and recommendations. I will mention again, just because I think it's such a great group. Like anyone that is thinking, you know, they have secondary breast cancer and they're thinking, I, I, would actually like to do a bit more I, I want to have a voice I want to other than going beyond things like you know you can write to your MP express your concerns about COVID be active that way help get in touch with my UK you know join us we're always looking for more people the more people we get behind this the more we can put pressure on it's what uh, Jo, she's the founder of the Met of UK. She always likes to say, feet to the fire, ladies. you got to keep their feet to the fire. <laughs> and I think, you know, anyone, because I was in that position last year. I was a bit like, I want to I wanna do something. This isn't right, but I didn't know what to do. I had a friend, Carolyn Gammon, and unfortunately she was one of the people that I know that have died. Uh, she became one of the 31 on September the 22nd, I believe. And, you know, it was kind of by chance Joe got in touch with me uh, and she was like, oh, you know, you're a friend of Carolyn's and bang. And then that set me off in that way. I understand it's not easy to find these things. So I'm just putting that out there now, Meta UK. If regular charities aren't doing it for you and you want an edgy group that actually does stuff, go that. <laughs> um, when it comes to blog posts and things like that, um, I don't know. I wouldn't say there's anything to touch on in my blog, if I'm honest. My blog is more of like a thing for me selfishly. I keep it as my own little 
archive. Uh, that's why I like to put like the things in like the Daily Mail and Total Health and my partner was on Radio Kent, just so I know, right, this is what we said there, this is what was done for my own accountability. Because I'm terrible sometimes just talking off the fly and I need to know <laughs> my context for everything. That's what I've broken the blogs down into like, you know, stories. So it's literally like primary and secondary. And then it's, I've tried to write the story bit as I was living it. So it's really descriptive. I'm a very visual person. I love to live in the present moment. So a lot of the story isn't so much like, and then I went to hospital and then I was like, (laughs) it's very much like, you know, about the atmosphere of the rooms and, I kind of just really enjoyed writing them because it selfishly it made me feel like an out-of-body experience. Like I weren't writing about my own pain. I'm not writing about my own death. It's just like a way of expressing yourself. And it's it's wonderful. And then people like it because people who know me are getting the updates from that. But then also I started hearing from people that I didn't know. And they were like, oh, I read like you like you. When you're like, oh yeah, I really, I really like your blog. And I was like, People are reading that. All oh, right. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't swear so much in it. I don't know. <laughs> I say you just, you stay true to you, sis. That's all I can say. <laughs> you stay true to you. And your swearing is part of what like totally got me in there. Cause I'm like, whoa, I didn't know this was a thing. And wow. Yeah. Let's talk about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess I, that's like the long winded answer of just essentially I feel like it would be an injustice to just highlight anything in particular on my blog because it's so varied. It is literally just an archive or a working project for all my secondary cancer efforts, thoughts, artwork, cartoons, whatever. So I love yeah. it. And I love <laughs> when you share your art on Twitter. So So, so good. And thank you so much for being on the show today and talking about secondary breast cancer and metastatic cancer, breast cancer, and also sharing with us perspectives from across the pond. And I know I have global listeners. And so, you know, when I talk about healthcare here in the States and, and even with you talking about healthcare in the UK, we still have listeners from all over the world as cancer is all people all nations all over the world and including breast cancer, which a lot of folks don't know. So tell me though, before we finish up, what are your plans with your art? Cause I keep telling you, you need to do a calendar, but. <laughs> oh, I very slow start with the year this year, but uh, I've been picking up a few things. Um, you know, when is this podcast going to go out? Cause uh, I've been doing like a present for someone that's retiring. Oh. <laughs> <Very slow. laughs> Um, <laughs> it'll be a couple weeks, but yeah, okay. it'll probably be the, by the end of this month. So yeah, for those who are listening, we do a pre-record at, because I am at rural and don't have great internet. So we don't do these things live. So this will be the end of March. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. So yeah, I can say I've been working on that, uh, putting a little video together for her and drawing a cartoon. I do draw other things other than cartoons. But I need to pick that up again. I've been saying to a lot of the Meta UK girls, like, yes, I'll be back on it. I'm a terrible procrastinator. But once I start making the cartoons again, they just come like weekly, bam, bam, bam. But it's like when I start it, that's when I know. I've got so many ideas. And I think that can be a hindrance sometimes, isn't it? It's like when you've got so much content, you're like, where do you start? 
there's nothing more daunting than a blank canvas or a blank piece of paper and you're like which one do I draw today and hell I'm only talking about cartoons here not um you know the conceptual art but <laughs> listen if I was to do a stick figure I would be overwhelmed with a blank sheet of paper so you just never know so where can folks find you I know we've got pink is not my color c-o-l-o-u-r.weebly.com is there any other place that you would want to send them to where they can see your art or just get a dose of Tasia? Oh, um, <laughs> no, I really used to plug in myself. Uh, I guess my Instagram, uh, just Tassia Haynes. Not many Tassia Haynes in the world, no. fortunately or unfortunately. <laughs> One of a kind, broke the mold. <laughs> um, yeah, just my Instagram at Tassia Haynes. And I've got like a little art Instagram at the site that some people like to look at. It's got like no followers and nothing. Again, it's just like an online archive. It's more of like, realistic portraits of horses and I like Madonna so Dream Madonna and just things like that that's called uh preaching Koshka so it's like preaching and the slash Koshka it's like clockwork orange language now to start because nice. I'm a bit geeky <laughs> nice and then of course I found you on Twitter so you've got Twitter out there as well yes uh, I do have Twitter I'm kind of like new on Twitter I've had it for years but I never used it and I've realized it's a great place to get involved in shagdo mask matches and mudslinging. And yeah. great. It weren't good for me when I didn't have anything to sort of shout about. So when I just lived in my life, I was happy in my job. It's like Twitter, that's a lot of negative energy. I don't need that in my life. Now that I need sort of people to know about things that are going on, I'm like, yes, this is great. So I think, yeah, Twitter, if you want to join me in nagging the UK government or anything like that, like, yeah, let's hop on board. <laughs> you are a model for advocacy. That's all I can say. And that's awesome. So, so good. We will have all of the links for Tasia and where you can find her, follow her and check out her art. All of that will be in the show notes. Or if you're watching on YouTube, it's right down below. And I want to thank you for listening to Your Killer Life. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and more importantly, share. Because the more we talk about breast cancer, the more we talk about metastatic breast cancer, the more open we are in the conversations. I'm going to quote Joe and say, keep their feet to the fire because, um, and then I'm going to quote you. Oh my goodness. I'm not going to quote you right, Tasia, but you know, uh, apathy kills more. Was it more direct, more directly? Apathy kills more than direct action. Direct action is needed to kill apathy. <laughs> yes that. Thank you so much for that. For more information about what you heard on today's show, check out all of the show notes and all of the links in the show notes or visit us at yourkillerlife.com. Don't forget to join us for a live after the show conversation on Clubhouse. And that happens Wednesdays at 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. And a little secret, we are going to be rolling out an after the show live conversation on Instagram in the near future. So you'll be able to join us out there as well. And until next time, thank you again for joining and keep building your killer life. Thank you for listening to Your Killer Life. And don't forget to subscribe. For more information about what you heard on today's show, visit us at yourkillerlife.com or visit our YouTube channel. You will also find us in all the usual places on social media. We have another great episode queued up for you next week. And until then, keep building your killer life.